Thank you for joining uh, School Psych Podcast tonight. Really excited. I just finished up my school year um, with with kids at least. I'm 12 months, but um, no more children in the building. So it's kind of, you know, that little bit of a, a relief that, <laughs> that things are going to calm down. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm, if anybody wants to put in the chat where they're at, and then if you're finished with all your evaluations and have everything tied up, we'd love to, to hear from you. But my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell everybody how to participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca, and I'm really kind of sad to not say that I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut any longer. I officially moved to Florida yesterday. And so though my room looks very furnished behind me, it is a lovely stream yard background, uh, virtual background. But I am a school psychologist living and soon to be working in the state of Florida. And I'm going to tell you how to participate. If you are watching us live tonight, which I hope you are, our live discussions are always uh, really lively. And um, the questions that you all have are great. You can just sign into your YouTube account and add a question or a comment right alongside the video that you're watching. Even if you are watching the YouTube video as a recording late at a later date, you can also comment along and those comments will be timestamped um, along with the video recording and we get notifications about those so we can often go back and, and continue the conversation over time. Also, if you want to send us a, a message on our social media, please inbox us at School Psych to your school psychologist on Facebook or the School Psych Podcast. Pat, bleh, sorry, podcast page, the School Psyched podcast page on Facebook and on Twitter at Podcast Psyched and use the hashtag Psyched Podcast. There's so many ways to continue the conversation, ask questions, whether you're watching or listening to the audio, and we can't wait to hear from you all. And now I'm going to hand it over to Eric, who is going to introduce our wonderful guest. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. And uh, we're all glad you made it safely to your new place. And uh, hopefully things will settle for you soon. Um, my name is Eric, and I am a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And I am happy to say my school year has wrapped up. So I am in summer vacation and very happy, <laughs> starting to relax a little bit. So um, that's exciting. But we are excited to have Dr. Tamar Black with us this evening, and uh, she's all the way across the other side of the world. She is in Australia, and we're here in the U.S., so it's it's really amazing how this technology works. Um, and Dr. Black is a has a Ph.D. She's a licensed educational and developmental psychologist in Melbourne, Australia. She has worked as a school psychologist for 19 years and in private practice for 20. She has extensive experience providing counseling to children, adolescents, and parents, and providing clinical supervision to early career and experienced psychologists. She is passionate about using ACT with children and adolescents and teaches clinicians how to use ACT in a simple and developmental appropriate way. She's also the author of a book called ACT for Treating Children. And we're really excited to have you here, Dr. Black. And we're passionate about counseling and uh, children and families and education. And so uh, we also love ACT as well. So uh, we're really excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for inviting me and having me. I'm, I'm so, so excited to be here. Um, today's the first day of our two-week winter vacation in Australia, so we're yeah feeling quite quite cold. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's fantastic to be here. Thank you so much. 
Awesome. Uh, well, I would love to hear a little bit about some of your experiences just getting into ACT. I know you have some material to present as well, but would like to, to hear how you connected with ACT and, and uh, got started with using ACT. Yeah, sure. Look, before learning about ACT, I was using CBT um, and behaviour therapy. I, I was trained in CBT and behaviour therapy in my master's um, and in supervision. And I really just kind of stumbled across ACT, to be honest. I, I hadn't heard about it. I didn't know anything about it. I was really just, just looking to do some new training. I felt like I was kind of always going to like the same CBT workshops and conferences. And I just wanted to really, yeah, have a bit of a challenge and, and learn something new. And I just kind of came across a, a Russ Harris introductory ACT two-day workshop on the internet um, and Russ lives in the same city as me. I, I went along to a local library to do a two-day workshop and um, I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is, but this is really, really different. I know for some people, like when they learn about ACT, they feel like, oh, this just feels like a really natural progression to things that they've already been using and to the way that they usually work. And to be honest, for me, it actually felt really unfamiliar. It, it didn't feel like anything that I was using. It didn't feel like anything that I had learned. And I remember at the end of the two days going to Russ and saying, look, this sounds really great, but how do I use this with kids and with teens? And I, I said to Russ, you know, would you come to my school and, and teach the teachers how to do this? And Russ said, no, 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 you can teach them how to do it. And I said, I, you know, I wouldn't know how. And I went back to work and I, I really did not know how to get started in trying to use ACT with my clients. Um, and so three weeks later, I went back and, and did his advanced training. Not that I was advanced three weeks later because I hadn't started using it, but I just wanted to keep learning and I really want to keep learning more. Um, and to be honest, it took me at least 12 months to, to start using ACT. I, I did not know where to start. And so I had supervision um, with an ACT supervisor who only works with adults. And I, I took my case studies to him and said, please help me work out how to start using this um, with kids and teens. Um, and then I actually enrolled in a PhD and thought that doing a PhD in ACT would be a good way to figure out how to do ACT. So I, I did a PhD. Um, I was Louise Hayes's first PhD student, which was really, really wonderful to learn from her. And I did a trial in schools of CBT interventions versus ACT interventions as a compulsory um, part of Year 9 school curricula. So I just kind of threw myself in, in the deep end, um, but it, it was a really great way to, to learn about ACT. That reminds me so much of Rebecca here, who is just like, you know, just like, oh, I'll do it. I want to learn more. I want to learn more. I'll just, I'll do a PhD. I'll do <laughs> very similar. <laughs> yes. And Tamar, I remember learning about, at the time, your upcoming book, Act for Treating Children, on the one of the ACT um, Facebook pages where Russ, I think Russ Harris is the moderator. And so I've loved his books. Eric and I one summer read the confidence gap, I believe. Um, and, and then we, and I, you know, I think we read every other one after that, but his books are great. And then I saw you on the 
on the page and you said you're having a book for children and I was so excited. And I, to all the school psychologists out there, if you are um, using CBT and trained in CBT and want to learn about using ACT with children, Tamar's book is amazing. I, I really love it. I know we're going to get into it, so I'll stop there. But um, yes, I'm so excited for you to begin. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you so much for the praise about, about the book as well. So look, what I really wanted to talk to you about today is some ideas of mine about how you can actually use acting schools. And I just want to say before I start, you know, there's lots of ways to use ACT. And I think that's the beauty of ACT, that um, it's not prescriptive. You, you don't have to use it in one way. You know, you can really kind of um, be very creative with it and, and kind of put your own stamp on it. So I just want to say before I start that the ideas that I'm presenting to you, this is how I like to use ACT in schools, but this is certainly not the only way to use ACT in schools. Okay. Excuse me. Um, so I just want to disclose, as Rebecca mentioned, I have a new book out, which um, came out on the 1st of May, published by New Harbinger Publications. Um, and just to disclose, I do receive royalties from sales um, of that book. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I just want to start by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of the land um, on which I live and on which I work and from which I'm presenting to you today. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and I acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to this land. Okay, so for those of you that are familiar with ACT, um, ACT is based around a model of behaviour change, which is commonly referred to as the ACT Hexaflex. Now, the ACT Hexaflex was designed um, by Steve Hayes and colleagues together with Kirk Strozal and um, Kelly Wilson. And the ACT Hexaflex was designed for use with adults. I think it's a really, really wonderful model that works really beautifully with children and adolescents. And so I've been using the ACT Hexaflex um, for, for quite a long time. But um, yeah, really since 2008 when I started using ACT. But what I found is that children and teenagers don't understand the language of the ACT Hexaflex. And so terms like self as context and committed action um, and contact with the present moment, they're really very adult terms and they're not kid-friendly terms. And so I found that when I was using the ACT Hexaflex with kids and with teens, I was paraphrasing the language. I was, I was um, coming up with my own terms for that language because I would certainly never use terms like self as context um, with children or with teenagers. So I was always sort of paraphrasing and coming up with my own adaptations of that language. And so I thought, well, maybe we just kind of need to adapt the Atexaflex but use developmentally appropriate language that children and teenagers can understand. And so I, I decided um, to, you know, to still use the ACT Hexaflex. I love the hexagon model. I love the placement of where all the processes are. I didn't feel that the actual model needed changing. I just felt that the names of the processes needed changing. 
So if you're familiar with the Hexaflex, you'll notice that I've kept everything in, in exactly exactly the same place. I've just changed um, acceptance to let it be, diffusion to let it go, contact with the present moment to stay here, self as context to notice yourself, values I've changed to choose what matters and committed action I've changed to do what matters. And psychological flexibility is, <coughs> excuse me, is the goal um, of the ACT Hexaflex. So all of the six processes mediate psychological flexibility. But I would never sit with a child or a teenager and say, well, you know, the aim of our work together is for you to be psychologically flexible. I'd certainly, you know, certainly never use that term with clients, but it's a term that I'm thinking about um, to myself as the goal of, of what our work together um, is trying to increase. So instead of psychological flexibility, I just changed it to, to I am flexible. Okay, so just so you can actually see um, what the different processes, um, what the, what what they're actually representing. So let it be, which is acceptance, is just letting unwanted private experiences um, just be there. And when I'm talking about private experiences, I'm talking about things like your thoughts, your memories, your urges, um, your, your sensations. Let it go is just trying to get some separation between us and your thoughts. So it's the idea that you are not your thoughts. And so one way that I like to explain this um, to kids particularly is I can, you know, put my two hands up and say, right, here's you and here's your thoughts. And right now it's like you and your thoughts are stuck together. So your thoughts might feel like they're part of you. And when we start to let our thoughts go, we start to get a little bit of separation between us and our thoughts. So what happens um, is often like this, get a little bit of distance between us, us and our thoughts. So here's you. And here's your thoughts. And you're no longer, we're no longer feeling like we're stuck together with our thoughts when we let them go. Choose what matters is simply the things that are important to the child. So going back to that act hexaflex language in the hexaflex, choose what matters is called values. So I would never sit with a child and say, you know, tell me about your values. What what do you stand for? Um I just think that that's, that's too vague and I, I don't think that kids or teens would, would understand that. I don't think kids, kids and teens sort of consciously sit down and think, well, now I'm going to think about my values. I think it's much easier just to phrase it as what are the things that are important to you or, or what do you care about? Um, <clears throat> and the way that I do, the way that I work with Choose What Matters is it might be a little bit different from the way a lot of traditional act therapists who excuse me who are working um, with adults address values. And so I don't use things like values cards. I don't sit down and say, well, you know, let's talk about what you want your life to be about, what you stand for. When I'm focusing on choose what matters, I'm making it very specific to the issue that the child is seeing me about, is seeing me for. And trying to help the child work out, is there anything about that particular situation or that particular thing that matters to them? 
and then address and choose what matters um, from that stance. So let's just say, for example, there's a child who is seeing me because they're um, really anxious about going to school and they might be engaging in school refusal because they're really, really scared to go to school. They're really, really worried that if they go to school, something bad is going to happen so they stay home from school. And so when I'm addressing choose what matters with them, I'm not just asking them generally, what do you care about or what, what, do, you, what do you stand for or what you want your life to be about? I'll be asking them, is there anything that matters to you about going to school? And for some kids, there's nothing about learning that matters to them, but having fun at recess, having fun at break or having fun at lunch might matter to them. And so sometimes when I'm working with kids who are school refusers, even though there's nothing about their learning that's important to them, when I ask them, when you don't go to school, is there anything that you think that you might be missing out on? If they say, I'm missing out on having fun with my friends, then I'm, I'm feeling like really excited inside. I'm kind of doing like a big yes because we've got something there that matters to that child. And so I'm going to try and work on them, work with them to increase, increase their tolerance level for anxiety, increase their resilience, increase their willingness to go to school because hanging out with their friends and having fun with their friends is something that matters to them. So I recommend always, always trying to, to, to elicit from the child, what is it about that particular thing that they're seeing you for that matters to them or, or, or what is it that they care about? And so do what matters is committed action. And so when I'm addressing do what matters with a child, we're not having a session where we're doing activities and exercises about do what matters. So the way that I address do what matters is through home tasks, things that the child can practice in between the sessions that is actually putting the process of the processes of the kid of the kid flex in place. So if I'm working with using that example before of someone who might be school refusing, a do what matters action would be maybe we can get them to go to school for one hour in the morning and then maybe we can increase that to two hours and maybe we can build that up to leaving just before lunch and then maybe the next day we can build that up to staying at lunchtime. So I see do what matters as being the actual actions that the child is going to do in between sessions and coming to sessions with you is is a do what matters action as well. So stay here is is present moment. I'm, I'm not using terms like mindfulness with kids. I just prefer to break it down, just be much, much simpler, just talk about stay here, being here. Notice yourself is what's known in the traditional um, act hexaflex as self as context. Again, I think self as context is a, a difficult term for people to um, to get their heads around and, and know what that means. I don't think we sort of intuitively understand what self as context means. And so I just talk about like noticing yourself or, or standing back and watching yourself doing something or watching yourself in, in a particular situation. My number one recommendation, however you use ACT, whatever you do with kids or, or with teens or even if, if you're working with adults, parents, whoever you're working with, the, 
the best piece of advice I can give you is to keep things really, really simple. And look, for me, in, in my ACT journey, I've certainly noticed that every year the way that I do ACT is getting more and more simple. Sometimes, particularly when we're new to ACT and we've learned about all these sort of complex metaphors, we can feel like the more we kind of include in a session, the more metaphors we throw at a child, the better we are at doing ACT. And I know I certainly made that mistake um, when I was starting out. The more metaphors I could bring into a session, I'll be sitting there thinking, yes, wow, you're doing it. You're doing ACT. Good job, Tamara. Really, really good. Um, but I, I find that yeah, the, the time that, that kids' eyes will glaze over the most and it will be clear that they don't they really don't understand what you're talking about has been when I've brought in vague metaphors that, that they can't relate to. So I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of just just keeping it really, really simple. And you know, if if you're not sure whether what you're planning to do is is simple or is simple enough. One thing I find helpful is to to check that out, to ask myself, do you think when this child leaves the session and goes home, do you think they'll be able to remember what you've taught them? And so that that can be a helpful way just in, you know, in your decision making. Okay. So I just want to talk to you briefly about some of my um, some of my ideas for the first session that you have in, in schools um, with kids. And I'm just very conscious the fact that, look, a, a lot of the time, a lot of the children that I work in within schools, I would regard as involuntary clients if they haven't actually initiated the referral themselves. Sometimes children do ask, you know, ask their teacher, is there someone that I could talk to at school? Um, or they might know about you in the school. And so they'll, they'll come and seek you out themselves. But a lot of time in schools, children are referred by their parents um, or by a teacher, by someone else in the school that feels like going and seeing the school counsellor or the school psychologist might be helpful. So a, a lot of the time that the kids are, are not actually self-referring. Um, and I find things look quite different in schools from when we see a child in private practice and, and they're brought by their parents. And I, I really like to sort of think about what might work really well in private practice when I'm working with children and how might I be able to sort of transfer some of that or, or replicate some of that um, to the school setting? And so, you know, when I see children in a private practice and they're brought along by their parent, I ask the parent to be in the room at least for part of the se first session just, just to give me a um, bit of a history in front of the child so that we're the three of us, so that we're all very clear why the child is seeing me. And so, where possible, I like to try and do something similar in schools. Um, if if it's a teacher or in Australia, we call it like a, a year level coordinator who's sort of in, in charge of like the whole grade. And so if the referral's been made by a teacher um, or by a year level coordinator, I, I often ask that person, is there any way that you could come for the first part of the session? Often the kids don't know where my office is um, if they haven't seen me before. And so 
I want I, I ask a teacher, would you be able to bring especially if especially if, if it's a child like in, in elementary school, the you know, the older kids, the teenagers, I can send them an email with directions to my office and they're usually pretty good at finding it. Um, but what I like to do is ask ask a teacher and you know, I often do this with the kids in the high school as well. Ask if there's a teacher making a referral, I say would would you be able to bring them to the session and would you be able to just join us for a couple of minutes just to introduce that child that young person to me and would you be able to just sit down and tell the young tell me with the young person there and tell the young person why you think it would be a good idea for them to come along and and have a chat with me um i just find it kind of sets up that team focus that we're, we're all working together to support the child and I I find it it, um, it it tends to decrease a lot of anxiety from the child it takes away the focus from the child for them to you know to have to kind of tell me why why they're seeing me and I, I just find that yeah where I have a teacher coming and and just introducing the child and just reassuring the child look this is Tamar Tamar sees lots of students who have you know with who have difficulties with I thought it would be a really really good idea if you could come along and see Tamar because I know she's got some really good ideas for this and then you know if that teacher can just kind of share just even like for one or two minutes, a little bit in front of the child about what the child's been going through and what what they're hoping that I might be able to give the child some help with. I just find the child seems much, much more relaxed, much more comfortable with the process. And it does, yeah, just kind of set up that, that sort of team approach. I find that that's quite reassuring for the child. Um, so I think where possible that that works really well. In the first session, um, especially if you're using an ACT approach, trying to develop a case conceptualization. And what case conceptualization is, is it's you kind of getting your head around, right, what am I seeing this child for? What are the issues? What um, what are the difficulties or the problems that the child's having? What strategies have they used in the past to, co- to cope with the same or, or, or with previous difficulties? What are the things that might be causing this difficulty? What are the things that might be reinforcing it? Um, and case conceptualization is a really great opportunity for you as a school psychologist to, to start to introduce what whatever the therapy is that, that, that you're wanting to use. When I'm working with someone, I'm, I'm using ACT. So it's a really nice opportunity for me to start to introduce some ACT terms and start to introduce some ACT concepts and see how the child responds and start to get an idea of whether I think this child would be a good candidate for ACT. Do I think that that ACT would be a good match for them? Do I think that they would respond well to ACT? Um, And it's also a really good opportunity for the child to to start to see how I work and start to see what I do. Um, I think that informed consent is is just so, so important. And it's a good opportunity for the child to actually see, oh, okay, these are the kind of words she uses. 
this is what she does. And then the child can also make a decision at the end of that first session whether they'd like to come back and see you and, and, and do some work with you. Um, it's also a very good opportunity to develop goals. And so no matter how long that case conceptualization takes, I think it's super, super important to always have a couple of minutes at the end of that session where you and the child collaboratively, and it's very much a collaborative process where you develop some goals together. So I'm not saying to the child, oh, this is what I think we should do. But what I'll do is I'll just summarize, I'll say to the child, okay, look, please tell me if I've got this wrong. Please tell me if I've made it, if I've misunderstood or if I'm making any mistakes here. But from what I've heard from you today, and I'll just kind of go through some dot points of the difficulties that I'm hearing from the child, maybe some things that they're not able to do or that they've stopped doing that they'd like to be able to do. And I'll give the child some suggestions. Look, if you wanted to come back and see me, I'm thinking that these are some of the things that I could try to help you with. How does that sound to you? What what do you think? Are they things that you'd like us to try and work on? Or is there something different that you'd like me to try and help you with? And so that before the child leaves that first session, you've got a you've got like a roadmap with the child of right these are some of the things that we're going to work on together. And then the child can make a decision about whether they want to come back and, and see you um, or not. And then just in that first session, especially in schools, because you don't normally have a parent with you, well, I, I presume that you don't normally have, have a parent with you um, if you're seeing the child in the school, I talk always talk to the child about contacting their parent. And look, I know that... Schools can be quite different in terms of releasing inf of information and in terms of whether you whether you have to get parental permission to see the child. In some schools, you don't you might not have to have permission to see them the first time, but your school may have a policy that you have to contact the parent within so many hours of meeting the child and you might need parental permission to see them again. So I always have a chat with the child, even if even if it's compulsory in your school to get permission and even if it's compulsory at your school to let the parent know, I'd still be having a bit of a, a of some discussion with the child around contacting them. So I might say, now, I need to contact your parent because it's the school policy that we have to let parents know when we've seen kids. But I would still involve the child in that sort of negotiation process about what information you're going um, to give the parent. And from when I'm working with kids and, and giving information to parents, I'm normally giving parents um, recommendations more than it's not so much about usually not so much about this is what your child's told me, but it's more around these are the recommendations that I'd like to make. Um, and also, I really want to train parents in ACT. I really want parents to know these are the strategies that I'm using with your child and these are some really, really quick and simple ways that you could reinforce those strategies at home. And so if you've got anything that, that you can send to parents, um, at the beginning of of, um, of 
the COVID lockdowns in 2020, I wrote just a, a very simple e um, e booklet for for parents about how to help their families cope with COVID. And so at the end of a first session with parents, I email that free e-booklet to parents and I say, look, I just wrote this booklet um, using ACT, even though it was about COVID and helping your family cope with COVID, you can certainly apply it to many situations. And so I just send them that along. Not every parent is going to read it. Not every parent is interested. Not every parent will have the time to read it, but I just give it to them um, in case they would like to read it. Okay. Sorry, I'm just noticing the font seems to have just changed a little bit. Um, okay, so certainly look when you're using the ACT Kid Flex, um, I recommend really trying to model those Kid Flex processes yourself. And so you might be feeling, um, might be feeling that you're quite nervous about um, about working with the child. I know that my own thought, my own mind often comes up with thoughts, are they going to be interested in this? Are they going to enjoy this activity? Are they going to understand my my language? All, all, all sorts of all sorts of things. Um, but just really like just really noticing your own thoughts and just letting your own thoughts and, and feelings go really asking the child about the things that matter to them. And you know what? You might be the very first therapist, even if a, even if a child you're working with has seen a few therapists before seeing you, you might actually be the very first one that takes the time to actually find out what matters to them and really taking that time to find out what matters to, um, or what the child cares about can really, really help you build rapport with the child. Really just practicing, just really staying here, just really being present in the session. If your mind starts to drift to things like, you know, which client have I got next or anything like that, just really trying to bring your attention back to, to being here um, in the room with the child and, and really note, noticing yourself. You know, sometimes I might be in, in the middle of a session with a child and I might kind of like hit my own imaginary pause button where I just kind of notice myself in the room with the child, noticing what, what thoughts and feelings are showing up for me and noticing myself in doing act with the child and, and interacting with the child. Um, I think if we want to increase psychological flexibility or we really want to teach a child to be flexible, we have to model that ourselves. And so the way that we can demonstrate our own flexibility might be, let's say before the session with the child, you've planned, you've you know planned out a bit of a guide for the session of of what what you're going to do. Um, but let's say the child, let's say the conversation shifts shifts to something else. I think it's really important to kind of like be imagining that that you're you're wearing a pair of ACT lenses and like listening with like what we call ACT ears and really sort of listening to the processes that the child might be talking about and really being willing to put aside your own plans of what you what you were going to do in the session and really kind of going with 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 where the child um, is 
And also, like if you had planned an activity, um, let's say you'd plan two activities to use, and you're doing an you're doing the first activity, and the child's really, really enjoying it, and they're really, really into it. Go with that. Like, don't don't kind of hurry and finish that activity because you had another activity planned. Just kind of just say to yourself, "It's okay. I don't have to do that second activity. Just stay in the moment with the child. If the child's having fun, just keep you know let let them let them continue to have fun. Um, you're much more likely to remember what you've taught them if if they've had had a good time in the session." Okay, so I know that working out where in the act hexaflex or where in the act kid flex to start um, can be a really, really difficult decision. And I know like a lot of therapists using act can get quite anxious about how do I work out where I start. And so some people like to start with the same process um, each time. What I want to recommend is is that when you're working out where in the kid flex to start, really ask yourself what would be like the most, what would be like the number one skill or like the top two things, top two skills that I think that this child needs to learn most. So going back to the example before of the child who's school refusing, who who just can't stand feeling anxious and won't go to school when they feel anxious. We could ask yourself, okay, what skill does that child need most? Well, perhaps that child, perhaps resilience will help that child. Perhaps um, greater tolerance of discomfort would help that child. So what I do is be thinking about the child and think about, okay, so what skill or what skills does this child need most? And try to then match that to the hexaflex, um, or the, sorry, the kid flex. So look at look at the kid flex. Look at the six processes. You know, have have them in front of you. Like you don't kind of have to remember them off by heart, but have a picture of the kid flex. Look at those processes and think. All right, I want to increase resilience. And I want to increase tolerance for or acceptance of discomfort. So which process or which processes of the kid flex might help me teach those skills the most? So if I'm wanting to um, if I'm wanting to build up tolerance of discomfort, I'd be working on acceptance, which is let it be. I'm I'm wanting to help the child um, be accepting. Of, of their own discomfort, but how am I going to go about teaching that? So in addition to, to let it be, I think I would be teaching a let it go so that they've got some strategies to let go of their anxiety and let go of their discomfort so that feeling anxious and feeling uncomfortable doesn't have to stop them from going to school. Now, one thing I want to say is that I don't or I don't use all act all six act kid flex processes with every client. Um, I think sometimes people feel in act that because there are six processes, you have to use them. You don't have to use all six. You might find that the child that the child you're working with is already using some of those processes really, really well. Maybe maybe they're they're already 
very, very connected with their values, very connected with choose what matters, what they care about. And maybe they're already doing things really, really well, doing some really amazing, bold moves, moving um, towards the things that matter to them. So you might not need to address choose and do what matters. Um, you might just just address let it be um, and let it go or if it's a child who's just very, very caught up um, in their thoughts, in their head, and not really, um, not really aware of, of what's happening in front of them, you might in, you might focus on stay here, um, and you might focus on on notice yourself, so that they can start actually um, ob- observing their self in in situations um, and and develop you know increasing their self awareness skills question um, from an ACT novice and also somebody who, who does a lot of assessment. Is there any type of, um, how, how do you determine that? I mean, it sounds like just from talking with the child, you kind of figure out, you know, if they have some skills already there and you want to focus more here. Is there any type of like, has anybody ever made like a formal ACT assessment, like a pre to, to give a, a practitioner an idea of, of where the needs are? Is that a thing? Yeah, look, um, I developed, and I put this in the book, I actually developed a case conceptualization template because I wanted to have something written that I could sit with at in the therapy session um, and also so that, like, I wouldn't sort of forget things as well. Um, and I found that the case that I, I was using some case conceptualization templates from ACT books um, that were written with adults. And so what I did was I, I just came up with my own. It's just full of questions. Um, and if you get the book, you can download the template um, as a, a free tool, as an accessory from the new Harbinger website. So you can print it out and actually use it in sessions. So there's lots and lots of, of questions. And I'm hoping that that people using the template will feel that the template will guide them to which process um, to, to work with. I think it's really important to be really listening really, really carefully because I find that when you, you know, like if you've got the, 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 the kid flex in front of you in a session and you're listening out very, very carefully, the child or their parent will often give you clues. So the child might say, I can't stand feeling this way. I can't stand feeling so sad. And so if if the child is saying, I can't stand feeling like this, I'm often saying to myself, aha, we've got to do let it be. And so I might, you know, draw draw an asterisk, draw a star, you know, write, you know, big capital letters to myself, address, let it be. So you're just kind of really sort of listening out for those clues. That's fabulous. Thank you. Awesome. And just the other thing as well is that um, I will make myself notes at the end of the session. It might just be like a one-liner, next session, address this particular process, just so that, you know, you've got kind of like a bit of a roadmap of of where you're heading based on what the child's told you or or what what you've heard or what you've heard they're not doing. 
Okay. I just want to talk super, super briefly about um, affirming neurodiversity and, and the importance of affirming neurodiversity. And I mean, we could do, you know, could do a, a whole day or two days workshop um, on this. Um, it's just super, super in, important. Um, and look, super important when, when you're working with, with anyone really, not not just um, when you're working with someone who's who's neurodiverse. But, you know, when we're using ACT, it's just so super, super important to be watching watching your language, especially with neurodiverse children, um, and not not be using vague language that might be that they might misinterpret um, or that they might not understand. So just making our language really, really concrete. Um, using if you want to use metaphors. Make up your own metaphors. Use metaphors that are easy for children to relate to. Otherwise, they're not going to understand what what you're talking about. I think in working with with ev- with all clients, it's really important to avoid using any phrases um, that are ambiguous. Um, when I'm working with autistic children. I'm really, really watching my language and and trying very hard to make sure that I'm not saying anything vague that that could be confusing um, or that could be misinterpreted. And so I'm thinking about phrases that people might commonly use, like you might commonly say to a child, I want to know what it's like to be in your shoes or or to walk in in your shoes. Um, That could be really, really um, that could be interpreted very, very literally. So if you say that to a child, they might think that you want to swap shoes with them and put their shoes on and walk around in them. And that might make them really worried. That might make them really uncomfortable. So I think with all clients, we have to try hard to really, really watch our language and, and not use vague vague phrases or, or vague um, metaphors. I think being really, really aware of potential sensory sensitivities um, is super, super important. And just really meeting the child where they're at rather than expecting them to conform um, to, to how how we might work. And so a lot of offices have have very, very bright fluorescent lighting, which can be very, very difficult um, for anyone who's got sensory sensitivities. And so if the lights are bright um, in, in your office and if you're seeing someone who might be sensitive to them, if you know that you're working with an autistic child, um, I always say, are these lights too bright? I'm actually finding them really bright myself. Do you, Would you like me to, to turn them off? Or they might not feel comfortable saying, please turn them off. And so what I often do, I turn them off before the child comes in. And I say, is it too dark in here? I can turn the lights on if you'd like me to. They are quite bright. If you'd prefer that we don't have the lights on, that's absolutely fine. Give give them a choice. But just, yeah, really sort of think about the environment that you're working in at school and what what might be difficult, what might be uncomfortable um, for 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 a child. If you know that you're working um, with an ADHDer um, and a lot of autistic children are, are also ADHDers, 
not just kind of sitting expecting them to to sit for an hour but really incorporating regular movement breaks trying to get up and do things um i know because of confidentiality it can be hard in schools to walk out of your office with a student and and go for a walk with them so you you might need to stay in your office but trying to get up and and do things rather than just sitting and talking um asking do you have any special interests and if they do, trying to incorporate their special interests into the activities and the exercises that you do. Um, and that can be just a great way of, of building rapport as well. Okay. So, look, I find um, in schools that ACT can be used really, really effectively for single sessions. Very often we have... Um, constraints on how many sessions we can see children for in schools. Um, a lot of the time school counsellors and school psychologists um, are employed part-time and so often the schools put a constraint might tell us you know you can only see each child say three or four times and then they have to be referred externally. And so I find making my, my sessions very, very structured, being very clear about what the goals are, being very clear with the child about what it is we're going to be working on. Um, I find using ACT in that way um, can be very, very effective for single sessions and, and for brief therapy. Often when I'm, I'm seeing a child um, in schools, Often they're in crisis. I might be seeing someone for the first time when they're having a panic attack right before um, a test or something or right before they're having to do a, a presentation in class. That might be the first time that I'm meeting them. And I've got to do something very, very quick to try and, and help bring down um, their level of distress. Okay. So one thing I'm super, super passionate about um, is the idea of using whole school approaches um, with ACT. So instead of just the school psychologist um, using ACT for counselling sessions with individual children, the idea of actually putting ACT into the curriculum and really using ACT from, you know, all the way through from, from K, if, if your schools have kindergartens or if they're starting, um, you know, well, in, in Australia, we, we call it prep, or maybe you call it first grade in, in America, but really really starting from the very first grade um, and until the end of high school and running regular whole school interventions, but not just running interventions for the students, also getting the parents involved, having parent, having some evening parent act interventions so that parents can come along and actually receive the training that their children are receiving as well so that the parents have an understanding um, of what the children are learning and then you know you're also giving the parents an opportunity to be learning from ACT and to be reinforcing ACT in the home as well. I believe that we shouldn't just be training teachers um, in using ACT but if we're going to use ACT interventions in schools we should be training all of the school staff. This includes your first aid staff, your, your school nurse, your school um, administration, your, your reception staff. Be training 
the entire school in it, all the staff, not just the teaching staff. You have to have to have to have regular boost set booster sessions where you're reinforcing um, what you've taught the children. Otherwise, they're not going to remember it. It's not going to have an impact. Really embedding those at concepts into the curriculum. So not just running isolated interventions, but actually showing the teachers how you can, how they, you know, how in English they can actually bring in ACT to be teaching a novel. How could they use ACT in sport? How could they use ACT in, in maths and science? Really reinforcing ACT um, in school newsletters, in, in assemblies, um, at sports days and um, field trips and, and school camps as well. And so when we're using ACT interventions in schools, we can use them with the whole grade. So if, if doing universal interventions, which is when everybody is taking part in the intervention, they don't have to um, they don't have to do any questionnaire and you know get any fulfill any sort of um, entry inclusion criteria in, in terms of scores, but running running interventions with whole grades using whole class sizes. So they're not actually going to not going to be small groups that are going to require lots and lots of of of, um, of staff to run them, but run them, you know, with 25, 30 students in a class, run them with, with whole class sizes, but run them to target specific issues. So I've done them with whole grades when there were friendship difficulties, um, difficulties with students not being inclusive, and we can really promote inclusion and pro-social classrooms through, the, through these interventions and hopefully de decrease bullying, decrease um, classroom challenging behaviour and hopefully increase student engagement with learning. Teachers can use ACT in the classroom themselves in, in, the, in the language that they use, modelling letting their own thoughts and feelings be and being will, willing to be vulnerable and take some risks in, in their own teaching. So things like um, acknowledge, you know, when they've got it, when they've designed a new activity, but they're not sure what, you know, whether the kids are going to enjoy it. Um, and just sharing their own experiences as, of, as well of, of difficult or challenging things that they've done. Um, I, I was running an ACT intervention with a teacher who stood up and said that um, he'd been in a motorcycle accident 12 months ago and he'd been too scared to have a go at getting back on his bike. And the night before, he'd, he'd gone and um, gone for a ride on his bike for the first time. And he talked about how anxious and how nervous he felt about doing it. But he talked about how much getting back on the bike mattered to him. And so he got up and, and went for a bike ride. And I mean, that was just amazingly, amazingly powerful. And the students really enjoyed hearing about that. Um, inviting students to try and practice really being stay, you know, staying here during an activity. Teachers can also be using ACT in the classroom as well to help students manage stress and anxiety. Really modelling, really promoting that it's okay to feel anxious and stressed in the classroom, that students don't have to leave the classroom just because they feel anxious or stressed and really be promoting being in the classroom and sitting with how they're feeling rather than sending sending them out just because they're feeling stressed or anxious and thereby promoting avoidance. Okay, 
teachers can also model that to parents um, at um, parent um, parent student conferences, interviews, giving them very very concrete action examples of actions that the students have done using ACT. And just just to finish, that if if we can train school staff in ACT and we can incorporate ACT into school curricula, we might be able to improve student resilience um, and prevent and decrease mental illness. So just as a resource, again, just a reminder about my book. And please stay, stay in contact with me. Okay. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I see a comment here uh, from a viewer, John Listino. Hi, John. He says he uses the ACT matrix as part of his community support for prevention and reduction for bullying, and it's an excellent way to start a discussion. So I, I really like the idea um, that you described of using ACT for and with the adults as a model, um, and I think John's example is is such a great one too. It reminds me of um, kind of how I began to learn about ACT through, through Stephen Hayes's workshop, uh, pra Praxis workshops, where what he first says is use these activities on yourself in order to understand them. And I think it, it's just so powerful to go through it that way. Could you maybe just share, I know we're out of time and I'm so sad about that, but um, could you share one activity that you think um, is powerful for either teachers, faculty and staff or parents? Gosh, all of them, so, so hard to pick. I think, um, oh, I mean, I love, absolutely love blowing bubbles, blowing bubbles outside. And like I've, I've done this with kids actually going out into the yard for kids who, who have been anxious about going out into the yard at, at a break and lunch and just like blow, blowing the bubbles, really practicing just staying in the moment and just taking turns in saying whatever thought your mind is coming up with and then blowing the bubble without trying to do anything to get rid of it. So we're not trying to pop it. We're not trying to make the thought go away just just noticing your thoughts I've yeah I've, I've had a lot of fun with kids doing that activity that's a good one I, I also think after the school years we've um, all had through the pandemic starting off the school well, well you're in the middle of your school here but here in the states we're at the end uh, uh, on our summer breaks largely um, I think starting off with some stay here activities for um, adults could be really helpful. And even just like mindful eating um, is if, if particularly like for the younger grades, if they're eating in class, real, you know, if the teacher can just really, um, you know, talk about really just trying to concentrate on noticing the taste of the food, the smell of the food, the flavour of the food, what what it feels like, what it looks like, um, that can just be a, a, a really nice um, activity as well, and something that the kids could practice at home. They could teach their parents and their siblings how to do that too. 
Awesome. I'm looking for any last minute comments or questions, um, but fabulous presentation. And I, I still, I, I try and I, I'm not an, an act guru like, like Rebecca is who, you know, has just dived into it so much, but I always, um, Anytime I'm seeing presentations on ACT, I'm always learning something for sure new that I'm like, oh, that sounds so good and I want to try it. And so, um, and even when you're talking about like, um, that really spoke to me, having the teacher introduce um, and be a part of that first session a little bit. Um, I was like, why haven't I ever done that before? That seems so helpful and so easy. So I'm um, like, yes, I'm going to try that one <laughs> moving forward. So thank you. Oh, um, pleasure. Thank and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Just, I mean, it, I've, it's honestly such an honour for me. So thank you so, so much. And I want to, uh, so this is our last episode, everybody, for for the school year before we're out on, on summer break. We're planning on coming back in the fall. So I'm excited for that. But um, this is a great episode to kind of lead us into the summer and and. We'll be recharging our batteries. <laughs> but um, yeah, any other thoughts, Eric, Rebecca? No, I just, I want to thank you again for, for yeah. being here, Tamar, and for your book, because um, as I just mentioned in the chat, it's so well laid out. It's so well scripted. I, I felt like it was having you um, as a supervisor, kind of it whispering in my ear as I was thinking about session by session. So recommend it. And I hope uh, those of you that do read the book, continue this conversation with us. Let us know what you think. Let us know how you're trying these concepts. And um, summer might be a great time for that kind of reading and preparation. So I hope everyone has an amazing summer. And this is such a great episode to wrap up our season with. And we look forward to coming back in the fall and maybe we can ask Dr. Black to come back um, also and give us a, a part two, a deeper dive. What do you think, Tamar? Oh my gosh, I'd absolutely, absolutely love to. I know you were interested in ERP and I would absolutely love to chat to you about, yeah, working with kids with OCD and using ACT together with ERP for sure. That would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. <laughs> All Thank right. you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.